0: Good evening and welcome to The Monk Debate, where we explore the broad spectrum of ideas relevant to our world today. Our question tonight, be it resolved that populism is the future of politics, arguing against populism is Will Sloan of the Heritage Foundation. On the other side, arguing against democracy is Will Sloan of the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Toronto. There is no greater threat to liberal democracy than populism, the déclassé notion that politics is worth caring about. As emotion—traditionally, the territory of the poor, the weak, and other social undesirables— seeps into our national dialogue, our goal of a post-ideological politics threatens to crumble. Even I have not been immune to this wave of fervor. My editorial, The Liberal Case for Mass Deportations, was subject to ad hominem attacks despite its presence in the prestigious Atlantic Monthly. While it would be easy to cast all blame for the rise of populism on Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, and others of their ilk, we so-called elites are not blameless in this matter. For years, we have wondered aloud why millennials weren't more engaged in the political process and should have clarified that we did not intend to be taken literally. We miscalculated with the Affordable Care Act, which undermined the essential truth that poverty is a moral failing. We have lost opportunities to legislate on social media, which for too long has been free even to those without bylines. And we have promoted an atmosphere of unseriousness in our politics by extending the vote in both Democratic and Republican primaries to voters with less than 20 years of party membership." To fight populism, we must re-embrace our common values. We must remember that capitalism is the greatest of all systems, and thus, by definition, impossible to improve. We must return to our shared goals, embracing issues that transcend ideology, from privatizing Social Security to dismantling the socialist labor movement. We must remember that our debates are never as important as the cocktails we imbibe after. And we must remember that democracy is something that is earned through a series of unpaid internships, three reference letters, and a 5000 dollars plate fundraiser hosted by the Spielbergs. For too long, populism has forced even the most comfortable and well-connected among us to be alert, upset, and engaged. End populism, and we could all be at brunch by now. Before we turn the discussion
0: to our audience for a vote, we have a late-breaking addition to the panel. from Medium.com, please welcome a howling void of id.
1: Thank you. I'm... I'm John Kerry, and I'm reporting
0: for duty welcome back to michael and us uh luke savage and will sloan here uh reporting for duty uh, woo-hoo. uh coming to you from the Kerry edwards studios here in the beating heart of downtown toronto uh where all the stars and starlets are out for the, uh, I don't know, somethingth annual Toronto International Film Festival. Will, are you excited to catch a glimpse of all your favorites from, uh, I don't know, Dennis Quaid to...
1: <laughs> De- yeah, Dennis Quaid. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to look up some like antiquated movie stars. <laughs> Oh yeah, sure. Um, uh, Andrew McCarthy, <laughs> Matt Dillon, <laughs> Rob Lowe. A, a couple of years ago during TIFF, I was walking,
0: uh, I guess down Bloor and across from the ROM, uh, I can't remember which hotel that is, but I guess, you know, it gets a lot of mileage during TIFF and there was, you know, like a red carpet and there were all these people standing there and, um, you know, it had that just that aura of like, hollywood glamour to it and i was like gosh who are they who are they waiting for like what what is this and it turned out they're waiting for dennis quaid <laughs> So all these people who are just like waiting
1: for hours because
0: they might catch a glimpse of uh, of dennis quaid
1: well every tiff there are always big lineups big crowds outside the hotels and for the most part they're people who stay there all day not knowing which star they're gonna see
0: you might catch like a third tier writer from a sitcom you watched on netflix or something
1: I mean, I don't know about you. I'm when I'm on Twitter, I follow a lot of uh, uh, film Twitter types. Mm-hmm. Uh, so today has been a lot of. Uh Pictures of people's press badges and pictures of people's like Starbucks muffin with it begins, you know, as they as they prepare to go into the trenches for for the hard work of of watching, watching the movies, you know, watching the movies and
0: then having uh, extremely formulaic conversations with the people who make and star in them.
1: Well, like it is hard work, though, because it's a film festival, which means there are a lot of premieres, which means the received wisdom oftentimes hasn't quite been articulated around the movie yet so that's diffi- a lot of contested ground isn't there? that's a that's difficult for critics so oftentimes you'll see the reviews coming out of the festival that'll be like you know lots to unpack here definitely <laughs> requires a second viewing <laughs> certainly a major achievement from a lot even of, if i'm not certain it works
0: a lot, of, a lot of people hedging their bets so that they can see where the wind's blowing before committing later
1: well because every year at tiff there's always one or two movies that ends up like having a gigantic backlash to it well last weeks Later. Last year
0: wasn't the big Louie one. Well, wasn't that a TIFF? CK, yeah. yeah,
1: which then never got released, right? That was very warmly received at TIFF and then once he got me too, it didn't mm. get released but lots of publications published their reviews anyway just because i guess they figured it was newsworthy right because people were curious and of course they were all one star reviews by that point when mm-hmm. it was like you know even without the scandal this wouldn't have been mm-hmm. a good movie
0: anyways i guess unironically we probably are both you know looking forward to tiff and we'll we'll probably uh see a few movies and who knows maybe one of them will be uh, will be great
1: yeah, I, I love TIFF. You know, uh-huh. we, we kid because we love. <laughs> TIFF so, like, dominates this city that it's more interesting to complain about it. <laughs> yeah, for people
0: that don't live in Toronto, like, TIFF is a year-round institution here. Yeah. Like, when you go to the, the Lightbox, which is kind of one of the big theaters downtown, it, you know, you often would just say, like, colloquially... Oh, I went to see Tarkovsky's Stalker at TIFF or something. What you mean is the lightbox. It's not like it's actually part of the festival, but you just say that.
1: The film festival accounts for something like 50% of international coverage of Toronto every year. Wow, So it's kind of hard to overstate, you know, mm-hmm. the extent to which it dominates. So, this so what city. you're
0: saying is Rob Ford actually was good for the economy after all.
1: Yeah, well, because he went to Hollywood that one time <laughs> and he told people about the TIFF. <laughs>
0: we got we got that hilarious SNL sketch. Yeah.
1: By the way, in case you were wondering, the other 50% of international coverage is the Michael and us podcast. Mm hmm. So we actually started
0: recording a little early tonight. You know, we've done a lot of uh, these kind of like red-eye episodes kind of late (laughs) night. But um, tonight, uh, you know, Will's got a big night ahead of him. So he actually came over a little bit early. You know, Will's doing something which even my my small level of left-wing micro-celebrity, Will, has obviously surpassed. What, what are you up to later tonight,
1: Will? Well, you alluded to the fact that there are many stars in Toronto right now, and one of them is showing a movie tonight at the Ryerson Theater. His name, uh, let me just check my notes and see if I get the spelling right, uh, Michael Moore, <laughs> his, his name is. Now, I'm not seeing the movie. I, I couldn't get a <laughs> ticket to the movie. But something even better I'm going to the after party, folks. I'm yeah, going to Michael Moore's that's right, party. folks.
0: In, in, in case there was any doubt, you're listening to the trendiest podcast <laughs> down, where the hosts... Uh, <laughs> The hosts get to rub shoulders with the likes of Michael Moore.
1: Maybe maybe Dennis Grave will be there. But this is seriously, I think, the moment that the podcast has been building up towards. A friend of the podcast had a plus one to the Fahrenheit 11.9 after party. <laughs> And I said, hey, could I maybe get in on this? We'll see. Uh, I think Michael will be busy tonight. I don't know if I'll really get a chance to talk to him. I love that you're not even seeing the movie. Like, Well, if I could see it, I would. Uh, we,
0: we will see it, folks, and there yeah. will be an episode on it. You know, this was, I believe it was the Ryerson Theater where some months ago you actually saw Al Gore as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh man! <laughs> okay, so we've mentioned Michael Moore, we've mentioned Al Gore. There's only one person left in the Michael and us cosmos. The, yeah, the, the, we've we've done the father
0: and the son.
1: But who is whole, the Holy Spirit?
0: <laughs> yeah. We're talking, of course, of, um, you know, friend of the show, the best president the United States of America ever had, a troop patriot. A man who went on a very long journey upriver. That man, of course, being two-term U.S. President John Kerry.
1: You're coming out pro-John Kerry now. Um, To me, he looks French. (laughs) (laughs) We watched Going Up River, The Long War of John Kerry, a quickly made 2004 (laughs) documentary that
0: that actually uh, was the official selection at TIFF in 2004, by the way, (laughs) very topical.
1: (laughs) It was released in theaters uh, in October, 2004 towards the very, yeah, very beginning of the month, just weeks before the election. And I believe it was made to counteract the Swift boat veterans for truth Mm -hmm. TV ads that so dented his support. And it's directed by George Butler who you may know as the director of the seminal Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary pumping iron where he was coming all day and night. So before we
0: get to the movie, which, uh, you know, no surprise, uh, this movie, uh, you know, was one of these things that we had to, we, we, we actually could not find it on like, even with the vast powers of the internet, the sum of human knowledge at our fingertips, this had to be acquired in like a shitty DVD version that I had to order, which I believe was secondhand.
1: Yeah. But That's it, two more dollars and Jeff Bezos is pump- (laughs)
0: But it did come with some really great special features that we wouldn't have got had we streamed it, for example, interactive menus, a theatrical trailer, uh, Dolby uh, 5.1 sound. Um, Chapter
1: selection so you can go straight to your
0: favorite scene. (laughs) (laughs) But before we talk about the movie, there's another Toronto institution that's been in the news, and that's, of course, the Monk Debates. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry debating Michelle Goldberg and someone else about... Political correctness or whatever mm-hmm. uh, The monk debates, you know really read the room and they thought well, you know, you think we've hit rock bottom But we're, we're willing to plunge further depths that <sighs> you can possibly conceive. So what did they do? They announced a debate about populism featuring uh i suppose two friends of the show you know i suppose one of them is more emblematic of my politics and another more emblematic of will's uh that would be david Frum and steve bannon uh well i guess you you caught wind of this yesterday
1: yeah the people behind the monk debates have i guess figured out that their audience is like people who read margaret wente's globe and mail columns yeah you know affluent Middle aged and older people who sort of consider themselves liberal. A little bit,
0: yeah. Well, have you been to a monk debate?
1: No, never. I'm embarrassed to say that I've been to several, although I
0: will Mm -hmm. also say that I've never paid for one. It's always somebody was like, oh, yeah, my work had a free ticket or you want to see like, I don't know, Paul Krugman debate someone about the deficit or whatever. I remember
1: reading as a book the debate between Tony Blair and Christopher Hitchens about whether Christianity is good for the world.
0: Well, actually, friend of the show, uh, our former colleague from the varsity, Alex Ross, went to that debate and and wrote about it. Um, But so, you know, having been to a few of these, I mean, I can say, yeah, they are infotainment for, yeah, like the Rosedale elite. You know, the kind of people who watch the news for entertainment, this is Mm -hmm. that, but it's for like a a more upper crust audience. The guy who hosts it is called Rudyard, you know? Yeah. Um, You know, I think what you said about how a lot of the audience broadly imagines itself as liberal, I think that's absolutely true because I think that really captures or it says something about what's really going on with the Monk debates and with this kind of like i don't know bullshit contrarian framing of debates in general which is you know for a lot of people who are kind of affluent bougie liberals like having a dissenting view means something that makes the mildly uncomfortable or which is like mildly out of sync with their kind of wishy-washy like middle of the road white liberal mm-hmm. view of things so that's why a contrarian view is almost always from the right and it's almost always something that's Like in this case, it's an upright kind of genial right winger who is basically nailed the niche of, you know, being the conservatism whisperer to an audience that is exclusively liberals because Mm -hmm. there's no pull within the conservative movement at all. David Frum debating like a feral reactionary ethno-nationalist, you know, a a Breitbart guy, um, Mm -hmm. a guy who is working round the clock to stoke fascism, you know, worldwide, uh, Steve Bannon. This is what we're told we have to entertain It's like a broad spectrum of debate. If you have a problem with this, it's just because you hate free speech and open debate.
1: And also Steve Bannon is your representative of populism, quote right, unquote. Right. In the description for this event, it's populism versus liberalism. Right, right. Because uh,
0: Because the horizons of political thought that you're allowed to have, there's only two choices. Mm-hmm. In every election, in every political debate, there's only two choices. And the choice is like, technocratic middle of the road, like Mm -hmm. liberalism or some kind of vaguely conservative variant that someone like Mm from represents or literal like fascist adjacent white ethno nationalism. Those are the only two choices, Mm -hmm. you know, just like the 2004 election, the only choice is kind of wishy-washy, compromise, middle-of-the-road liberalism or, you know, militaristic right-wing bombast. Those are the only two choices. All other alternatives, even the opportunity to debate them, are precluded, and if you have a problem with that, uh, I guess you just don't like free speech and open debate.
1: So obviously one of the functions of this event is to reassure these people that there are still respectable conservatives Mm -hmm. and conservatism, though you may not vote for them, is a proud intellectual tradition Mm -hmm. that still exists but i think the troubling thing is people at this event also just want to be in the same room as two famous people absolutely So like steve bannon is the guy they see on tv and have heard so much right. about so like it's exciting to be in the room with them this is why you know another controversy this week the new yorker festival inviting right. and then disinviting bannon david remnick of course tried to defend the decision by saying you know hey uh we're gonna ask him tough questions you know you gotta you got <laughs> sunlight's the best disinfectant yeah exactly you know all that all that bullshit uh but it can't work because the audience there these rich manhattanites are just pleased to be in the room with a celebrity
0: right and they and they have this like very time magazine idea of what steve bannon is where they think he's like this dark prophet and like yeah and it turns
1: them on a bit you yeah know? they
0: they kind of like it it's a little you know and you know steve bannon's not that steve bannon is a blundering ethno-nationalist who ran a website with a black crime you know tag on it if, you want, if, if it enthralls you and excites you to be in the same room as that guy uh, you're the problem. It
1: is just another interesting insight into the banality of most people who actually are wealthy that they would pay an extraordinary amount of money to be in a room with David Frum and <laughs> Steve Bannon. Yeah, yeah.
0: And what I like about this, so I don't know if you saw Frum's tweet about it, but he is so up his own ass. He tweeted about it and he was like, it was something like, I will be, you know, engaging in this critical debate days before or the midterms or whatever, as if David Frum debating Steve Bannon in Toronto is going to have some impact on the U.S. elections. Yeah. As if Things are going to be decided here because what's going to happen is David Frum is going to vanquish fascism with a bunch of Sorkin-esque flourishes about, you know, the greatness of American liberalism and all this crap and how you know the once noble republican party the party of nixon Mm. the party of reagan the party of goldwater the Mm. party of bush is going to be has been buried by by bannon and trump what's so funny about this is bannon you know was part of the rise of trump and You know, another person who's been solidly in the Trump orbit, fully committed, not talking about Chris Christie, I'm talking about Mr. Rudolph Giuliani, another guy very much in the Michael and us cosmos because he was around during the early 2000s, if you remember.
1: Yo, of course, America's mayor. Do you know who uh, was
0: his policy advisor back in uh, 2008 when he was... uh... (laughs) Dare I ask? Uh, David Frum. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I love, this is the spectrum, two Republican adjacent figures, yeah. right? Well, two two Republicans, yeah. uh, both Donald Trump adjacent, like both one move or less away from Donald Trump. And that's the debate that we get to have. And as, as you pointed out, this kind of counterposing of liberalism and populism, I mean, this has become like a cause of mine in my writing is debunking this. It was back in 2016 where I still can't believe I had to write that article um in response to a Guardian piece by a writer who I won't name about, you know, where he basically went to a Sanders rally and a Trump rally in Iowa and he was like, "Oh yeah, this is like the same thing because they're both like white men of the same generation you know what i liked about small p populace or something what i
1: liked about that essay was him trying to do like he's a white guy but he kept trying to do all this tanahisi coats yeah shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was talking real... about his white body yeah you know? yeah uh, his uh uh
0: what was the line about how he saw a scar the shape of post climate change florida oh. on his like his tingling groin or whatever yeah, yeah. um anyway we've we've 100 given away what that was but that kind of horseshoe theory idea right the, mm. the left and right simply converge and we don't actually have to we're under you're under no obligation apparently it's nobody's business to talk about the actual ideological difference <laughs> be, between like somebody that's running on like mexicans or rapists and yeah. somebody that's like everyone should have healthcare and not have to like be at mm-hmm. the mercy of an insurance company that's trying to kill them So it's become just this enormous pet peeve of mine the way that this like populism meme has crept into the media And I had a piece in the walrus recently about this because it is everywhere and it is very much the province of kind of Current affairs magazines and and op-ed writers the world over this idea that there's this thing called populism I- I'm just gonna roll the dice and say Uh, I don't think there's too much of a gamble. If you searched like Fareed Zakaria populism Mm. or, uh, Ian Bremmer populism or Francis Fukuyama populism, uh, you'd get a lot of hits on Google right now. Like this has become this catch all explanation. I think what, what's really going on here is, you know, you have basically a crisis of I mean, I don't know how you can look at the moment we're living in and not say there's a crisis of sort of the political consensus or whatever. What people are looking for, people who are kind of defenders of that consensus and sort of support its kind of core norms and values and institutions, what they're looking for is a kind of catch-all explanation mm-hmm. where you can shoehorn every critic of it into the same thing. So, you know, we're, we're told that, you know, their populists are on the rise and for some reason that includes everything from the new left-wing president of Mexico and Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump. and. Mm-hmm you know, Italy's five-star movement and Marine Le Pen, but also Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's like her diametric opposite on the French left. You know, it includes German right-wing nationalists and their equivalents in Eastern Europe, but it also includes Jeremy Corbyn. Like it's just all over the place it's this catch-all explanation the Monk Debates has given us kind of in miniature like the perfect summation of just how narrow the horizons debate that this allows for or kind of envisions.
1: They also do regard populism as like fundamentally de classe. Oh, they don't like like it. It's it's unpleasant to be emotionally invested Mm. in politics. You know, it's something you associate with, yeah, poor people and like us, us mature people who know how things work are kind of above that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a big part of this I think really what's ultimately root of it is that a lot of people are just deeply suspicious of the enterprise of democracy um, I mean this has been a part of the revolt of the, of the middle brow you know current affairs columnists I mean you've had things like um, I've forgotten the guy's name but that piece in I think Foreign Affairs like about a year ago that was literally called it's time for elites to rise up against the ignorant masses Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and this is what for, for a lot of people you know in this orbit that's where they think trump came from they think the problem is democracy itself and what we actually need to do is we need to have less of it i mean david Frum's book on uh trump which you know i uh, i reviewed um you know i subjected myself to the whole book and i gave it as kind of good faith a reading as i could this is a book that's been you know widely praised as this searing indictment of the trump presidency and you read it, and I'm not convinced most of the people that are praising it have actually read it, or they certainly haven't read it carefully. They, they kind of skimmed it, and it makes kind of the right noises, and so they're like, oh yes, this is, this is good. But morally equivalent in this book, according to David Frum, are Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street and the Trump movement. He says that all these movements have many important similarities, Mm -hmm. uh, including their, their rising tolerance for violence. That's one of the things he says. He also compares the Bernie Sanders, like supporters of Bernie Sanders to brown shirts. This somehow completely eluded the effusive, gushing commentary from all the reviewers and stuff. I don't know of a single major newspaper that did a review of this book that was like the slightest bit critical that is really what's at the root of a lot of this this is people are just they think that all criticism of the status quo is morally equivalent regardless of what its content is or what its analysis is and they are deeply suspicious to anything which challenges the reign of the op-ed columnists and the technocrats and the you know the foundation hatched like suits and all the rest of it uh that's why we get debates that counterpose liberalism and "Quote unquote populism," meaning in this case fascism, well, as if those
1: are the only two options. If it makes you feel any better, Steve Bannon will do fine at the debate. <laughs> you know, he's a street fighter, but he also knows how to play the game. You know, he'll quote all the right Greek philosophers, uh, and the uh, Rosedale audience will leave and they'll say, "You know, I don't agree with his <laughs> politics, but you have to admit he's quite smart." Yeah, you know? I mean, he,
0: God, he quoted that one line from Sun Tzu that he, or like Machiavelli yeah. that he that he yeah. memorized beforehand, oh, so, and in
1: fact, he will approve cite JFK yeah that's at, right at one point yeah you know, yeah he will say you know what Kennedy understood was and then they'll say Whoo. and in fact he will even say something nice about Bernie Sanders he will especially say something nice about Bernie Sanders and, <laughs> and that will confuse people <laughs> it's just
0: it's just like just throwing so much at the, yeah. at, at the like Uh, rubes in the audience that they're just he's a
1: surprisingly nuanced thinker they just get
0: like ideological vertigo and they think that it's because it's because oh actually we're confronted we're in the presence of genius
1: yeah yeah so anyway look this is the longest we've talked before getting to the movie uh (laughs) which may not take that long to talk about but going up river the long war of John (laughs) john Kerry. each day to facilitate the process by which the united states washes her hands of vietnam someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake. Someone has to die so that President Nixon won't be, and these are his words, the first president to lose a war. This was from a time when politics was working, you know, as it should. (laughs) We were in the, we were in the middle of a doomed but principled war in Iraq.
0: <laughs> yeah, as Ken Burns, like recent Ken Burns documentary pointed, it was a war begun with the best of intentions. And you know, as
1: you like, if you if you squint hard enough, you can see America's ideals in the war. We were we were spreading freedom, <laughs> but you know, gosh darn it, people at the helm just didn't have the right tactics. Uh, I mean, they should have known that the Sunnis weren't the Shiites. <laughs> And we could have had a president who would have known that, and things would have been okay. <laughs> and that's where John Kerry was right. They for they, duty. they let
0: all the murder get compromised by torture on top of it, and that just that uh, eroded the
1: public's confidence in the war. So, of all the bad documentaries we've watched on this podcast, I think this might be the best one.
0: Yeah, I'd agree you know? with that. It, I mean, so I would say the the biggest complaint that we had about it as a piece of filmmaking, if you can call it that, is that it was boring. I mean, if you would have condensed the movie into, like, a 15-minute sort of extended trailer, that would have done the trick. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it is just a document of John Kerry went to the war in Vietnam and uh, realized it was bad and came back and, alongside other veterans, spoke out against it. The film came out, like, six weeks or something before the 2004 presidential election, Mm -hmm. in which Kerry did not, by the way, run on an anti-war program,
1: but um, Look, he was very clear. Was Saddam Hussein a threat? Yes. Should they have gone to war? Yes. Should they have gone to war? No.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, the, the film is mostly just kind of a run through of those events. And I mean, I guess the most kind of snarky thing you could say about it is just that it watches like a bunch of sort of time magazine baby boomer like 1960s hits it ticks the boxes There was a moment where we were watching and i said you know i bet we're about to hear some crosby stills Nash, and young and sure enough you know find the cost of freedom starts playing i think we also heard canned heat at one point we heard like uh, several uh, bands that, yeah that several bands that played at woodstock or were sort of mm-hmm. woodstock adjacent um we got a lot of those kind of hits there was a, a little you know vignette about how the Kennedy assassination defined a generation we got to Dependably, see Dependably
1: we saw Walter Cronkite, yeah, the Cronkite you know. thing like so all that was there um the thesis of the documentary which is stated early on is that the story of John Kerry is the story of the boomer generation so hmm. Kerry himself disappears for long stretches yeah. of the first half while we get kind of, you know, the standard liberal Democrat boomer line on Vietnam. Mm. I mean, to the movie's credit, it tries to reckon with the moral atrocity of oh, the yeah. Vietnam War. You I, know? I would I
0: would say, like, I don't want to be too hard on this movie for that reason. I mean at the end, you know, when there's kind of the predictable shot of Carrie doing that thing with like a paper and pencils on the on the National War Memorial, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, yeah. You know, you have that and that says like, you know, the number of Americans that died in Vietnam. And then it says the number of Vietnamese who were killed Mm. in Vietnam and says over half of them were civilians. So, you know, credit to the movie for, for doing that. We see Uh, a
1: lot of very grisly stock footage and photos of Vietnamese victims of the war. mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I guess, you know, the movie itself is not that interesting, but as kind of a document, a dispatch from the era where our show, of course, is really spiritually rooted the early 2000s. You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, after we watched the movie, we watched not all of it because, you know, our masochism only goes so far. But we watched part of John Kerry's 2004 convention speech where he begins in this unbelievably stilted fashion with John Kerry reporting for duty. And, you know, the speech is just it is like a paint by the numbers of like Democrat voice cliches about, you know, I rebelled against my own party by by taking the principled stance. We had to get the deficit under control and like that. We had to like get that. more
1: law enforcement on the street. And yeah you know, back in the 90s, remember what we did? We raised millions out of poverty. Right, right. It's like, you know, they said
0: that we couldn't force, you know, thousands of black mothers to work at call centers for their food stamps, but damn it, we <laughs>
1: proved them wrong. Yeah, yeah. so He doesn't say it in quite those words. Uh, you know, watching that speech, I I was reminded of when we watched the 2004 debate between Kerry and Bush. When you watch it over again, you know, Bush is telling a very compelling story. Right. Uh, it's, it's a simple story, mm. but it's very powerful and it's very kind of moral. Mm. You know, like there are bad people in the world and we have to stop them. Mm. And-,
0: and then the Kerry response is to embrace exactly that narrative, but then to offer as an alternative, just like a sort of Mushier version of it that's kind of like Well I don't know I mean we have to be What you know what if we did exactly Mm -hmm. the same Thing but we branded it with the UN Instead of like something like that
1: Yeah and we yeah we go through all the kind of Official channels and Uh and We we study yeah and we and we
0: build A coalition of even more countries To help us do this bad thing And
1: it's also kind of branded With this like faded Sixties aesthetic where it's Like you know we were we were told Once that we couldn't change the world and we did and we still can i mean you can't change the world too much
0: you, know? you can make a few little tweaks to it like yeah. you can maybe you can maybe like a Toss a couple more dollars into an earned income tax credit here, or like a. There you know, are
1: those who say we can't privatize Social Security. <laughs> to them, I say, dream bigger.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so this Kerry speech, I mean, I think watching the film, what was so striking is how the Kerry people really tried to have it both ways in the early 2000s. I was reminded of when we watched Pennebaker's film, The War Room, about Clinton and the trailer had that thing about America was about to get its first president from the sixties generation. It's like, mm-hmm. stop pretending that there's something like cool about Bill Clinton. Like, you know what? It's like that, just the use of the sixties uh-huh. in the most callous kind of cynical way, just as purely an aesthetic, purely about branding. And they very much did that with Kerry as well. Like Boy, an,
1: Bill Clinton's sure a hell of a lot cooler than this guy.
0: Well, I mean, Car- John <laughs> Kerry is like, is just like a,
1: a you couldn't manufacture un- a less charismatic guy. and <laughs>
0: sculpted block of ice has more <laughs> charisma and energy yeah. than this guy. Like, like, I would encourage everybody to just watch the first 30 seconds of his 2004 speech as he, like, prepares himself. Watch his body language. He prepares to deliver this unbelievably hacky line about, I'm John Kerry reporting for duty and all the kind of mm-hmm. false starts as he, because his timing is so bad. Like, it's just it's terrible but so in his kind of flourish about you know we we tackled the jefferson and we did this and whatever then he just tacks on at the end you know something about you know for peace and we ended the Mm -hmm. war in vietnam or whatever and it's as if all these things sort of Belong together in a list and we just hazard a guess that maybe some of the guys that were on his boat on the river in Vietnam You know who are maybe less successful in their post-military life Maybe their aspirations were a little grander than uh, going to the Senate and being the maverick who said we have to get serious about the Deficit and then when the next war comes, we're gonna advocate quite fervently for doing it a little better Mm -hmm.
1: The movie takes some measures to compare him to John F. Kennedy, as all Democratic candidates are eventually. It's the compared. only
0: political reference point there yeah. is for like a certain type of movie is fading
1: it? fast. I gotta say, uh-huh. um, although
0: you made the very alarming point before we start watching the movie about how we're about to get a whole other wave of sort of Boomer nostalgia.
1: Oh yeah. Well, because the Boomers are in their 60s and 70s now, and. We all remember in the '90s when the Greatest Generation was that age, and we got a whole wave we got of saving
0: private Ryan. Yeah, World War
1: II nostalgia. Yeah. Well, folks, that's coming back in a big way as this world crumbles even further. Mm-hmm. It's only gonna come back more and more as as they remember these images of like people protesting at the National Mall and being like, "Ah, remember when we changed the world?" <laughs> as comfort food. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we see that clip of Kennedy, of course, saying, "You know, ask not." what your country could do for you, ask what you could do for your country. Mm-hmm. And the movie then says that Kerry answered that call There's, in two ways. It, it cuts
0: to someone who says, you know, those words profoundly affected him, you know, yeah. like something like that, like those yeah. words stuck with him and they were embedded in his yeah. soul.
1: So he had a two-pronged answer to that call. He went to Vietnam uh-huh. and fought for his country. Uh-huh. And then when he realized that, that was a con, he came back and fought against the Vietnam uh-huh. but War. He, but the point
0: is he was a troop throughout.
1: Both were patriotic. That's right, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm reminded, of course, of the last DNC, which, you know, uh, makes 2004 look like a 60s peace rally, basically, <laughs> because they'd gone just full, like, I mean, they turned it into a sort of Republican convention where it was just police and military and... And they were proudly touting like actual Republicans like Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, as in yeah, exactly, as endorsers and and the Clinton delegates on the floor were given instructions about if the Sanders delegates started chanting certain things, what they were supposed to chant in mm-hmm. response and the no more war chant they were supposed to respond with going
1: u.s.a. (laughs) u.s.a. i mean what can you even say about it before we go maybe it might be interesting to talk a little bit about swift boat veterans for truth Mm -hmm. why do so many of us have serious questions how did you get your purple heart when your commanding officer didn't approve it why have you repeatedly claimed you were illegally sent into cambodia when it's been proven that you were not
0: how could you accuse us of being war criminals and secretly meet
1: with the enemy in
0: Paris and promote the enemy's position back home.
1: When I was a POW and Americans were being killed in combat, how can you expect our sons and daughters to follow you when you condemned their fathers and grandfathers? If you wanna pretend that Trump is some aberration, you really <laughs> kinda of have to ignore that. I mean, so again, to the movie's credit, we see you know elements of the winter
0: soldier here. We see parts of the Winter Soldier hearings, which if you've never seen them, this was, you know, veterans from the war just explaining all of the horrors in public for the first time. And, you know, I they think they had similar hearings for the Iraq War, which the U.S. national media mostly just ignored. But so we, we see this testimony, which is really horrifying or bits of it. And the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth are one of the several groups, I guess, who like think that the Winter Soldier hearings were like a psyop they were like a con like they they actually it's not just like these guys said the stuff and they're just wrong about the war it's like this was actually like made up I'm pretty sure they were one of the groups that doubled down you know if I'm wrong you know apologies to all the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth uh, people that are listening to this
1: it's hard for me to think of something about uh, Swift Boat Veterans for Truth that hasn't been said but it does feel in some way like you know just a landmark of that political era well it's interesting how there's like conspiracy
0: movement develops either on kind of the like, MSNBC unite blue liberal side or on the sort of Fox MAGA side of the spectrum, depending on like who has institutional power at a given moment. So during the Obama era, was all this racist stuff about the Kenyan usurper and yeah. you know like the birther movement and stuff, which obviously Trump was a big part of that. And now it's like you know Vladimir Putin literally <laughs> stole the election from Hillary Clinton, and you know John Kerry. It was like I mean I guess he wasn't president, but it was like even the John Kerry was was. I mean, you know, in this 2004 speech, it's basically just like, the, it could be a Republican speech. If you just substituted a few words, it could be a Republican if you just substituted a few words, but that wasn't enough for these people. It's like, no, no, no. He's like, he's fake it. He didn't really win three purple hearts. Do you remember when that was like in 2014 or the yeah. jib jab video?
1: That was pretty funny though. Wasn't it? Because uh, you know, he was obviously campaigning against this alleged draft dodger and the Bush side, you know, obviously realized that this was a problem. So somebody on that side funneled a lot of money into this and then overnight seemingly all of Kerry's support among veterans just disappeared. Did that actually happen? Yeah, mm-hmm. it did. I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying it a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's like just a crazy turn of events.
0: Good thing John Kerry can at least hold his head high that he ran a principled anti-war campaign and definitely didn't do things like get photographed uh, with a hunting rifle in camo fatigues because then people might've thought he was inauthentic or sort <laughs> of, you know, putting putting something on.
1: Or a little too French. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember when that was a popular meme? On oh the, yeah, right? well,
0: that was that old thing about, yeah, like because France, <laughs> state of the Iraq, war so like the, that's where the freedom fries yeah. came from yeah which by the way if you go into any staten island based french fry chain uh use the code michael and us uh <laughs> to get 25 percent off on your freedom fries
1: Even before Jane Fonda went to Hanoi to meet with the enemy and mock America, John Kerry secretly met with enemy leaders in Paris. Though we were still at war and Americans were being held in North Vietnamese prison camps. Then he returned and accused American troops of committing war crimes on a daily basis. Eventually, Jane Fonda apologized for her activities, but John Kerry refuses to. In a time of war, can America trust a man who betrayed his country? Swift Boat Veterans for Truth is responsible for the content of this advertisement. So a little business, the fan episode is coming up very soon on the Patreon, probably the next episode. Uh, If you haven't
0: subscribed to the Patreon yet, please do. There seem to be ongoing issues with Patreon, so apologies to everybody who got their pledges rejected or whatever. Uh, I think... Patron's been in a bit of a transitional phase and uh hopefully they've kind of got things settled now and that shouldn't be a problem. Uh but we'll keep you notified and if you have any questions, uh if you're already a patron or you want to become one, feel free to send us a message on the Patreon. We'll get back to you as soon as we can.
1: But Luke and I are gonna put all of the suggested movies onto a piece of paper and then cut it up and then put it into a hat of some kind and toss it around. Yeah, so the fan then... episode we promised is is coming
0: up. We're not but... rigging it. No, 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 no. This that's the point. Yeah, there'll be no Russian interference in our Patreon, I assure you, there'll be no hacking. You know, you could be confident in the results. Whoever wins the popular vote, uh, you know, wins the election. That's our pledge to you.
1: Well, I've got a date with Michael Moore, (laughs) so uh, watch this drive. I ask you to judge me by my record. As a young prosecutor, I fought for victims' rights and made prosecuting violence against women a priority. When I came to the Senate, I broke with many in my own party to vote for a balanced budget because I thought it was the right thing to do. I fought to put 100,000 police officers on the streets of America. And then I reached out across the aisle with John McCain to work to find the truth about our POWs and missing in action, and to finally make peace in Vietnam.